gracious God, we do ask that you would speak to us today, that you would grant us your wisdom and discernment and grace. As we talk through hard issues, we ask that you would grant us your peace. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. It all started in 1998 when Michael Zwick of Glenview, Illinois, complained about his neighbor's new fence. He felt that it left a a dark area behind the garage where gang members might hang out. In response to his complaint, the neighbor, Gene Kraft, according to the Chicago Tribune, told Zwick not to put his recycling bins on the public parkway in front of her house because they were killing the grass. In retaliation, Zwick blew leaves back onto her property, let his weeds grow 12 inches high, and aimed a fake security camera at her yard. Then she moved his recycling bins, complained to the police about snow plowed onto her land, and bought new shades and draperies to cover her windows. The village of Glenview finally wrote an ordinance that prohibited Zwick from putting his recycle bins close to his neighbor's house. Zwick defies the ordinance and has been given 10 citations and charged $1,000 in fines. And the case has now gone to Cook County Court. Zwick says, we're digging in. Can you imagine something so silly? Uh, what, what started as simply a fence and a, and a dark area and maybe some recycling bins has turned into a, a county court case. It's silly unless you've ever had someone comment or complain against you. It's silly unless you've ever had someone retaliate after you've given them just a helpful, innocent suggestion. The problem, or so it seems, is where does it stop? Or maybe more importantly, how do we keep it from starting in the first place? Because, of course, that's, that's what's so difficult. When, when I'm hit, I want to hit back. When I'm hurt, I want to hurt back. Worse still, some of this seems to be a little bit hardwired inside of us. I mean, doesn't natural selection, survival of the fittest, demand that we fight back? Doesn't our sense of honor demand satisfaction? Doesn't our sense of justice demand that the scales be set back to right? And never mind about my wounded pride or self or ego, I'm sure this has nothing to do with that. This has to do with justice, honor. But if all of that's the case, what do we do? How do we not constantly end up in cycles of violence and abuse and retribution? And what do we do when we are the ones who have been hurt or bruised or scarred? How do we respond? While we think about that, let me remind you where we are, because we are continuing our series looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and as we've been talking about, Jesus is painting a picture of how Christians are supposed to live and how we're supposed to live differently, how we're supposed to be distinct. Because, of course, as much as Jesus' sermon sounds like simple good news or common moral advice, the reality is that it's really difficult to live this way. 
And yet, this is who we are called to become as disciples. We're called to be beatitude people, poor in spirit and peacemakers and meek and merciful. We're called to live as salt and light in a world that that decays and sometimes feels dark. But this means that we have to, to be better. We have to be different. We need to make a bigger impact. It means that we are to live toward a higher standard. It means that we are to live in His kingdom come. It means that we need to be more like Jesus. And so as we continue on in His sermon, I would invite you and encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Let's read. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is His footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more Then others, do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. This is one of those passages that's really, really easy as long as we keep it abstract. Uh, This is a great general rule for humanity at large. This definitely should apply to others and outsiders when they're upset at us. But this passage gets really, really hard when it talks to us, when when it's our side that's done the hurting or that's been hurt. Because, of course, I want others always to turn the other cheek. I think that's a good policy for everyone else in the world. I want others to always and only be honest with me all the time. I want others to to give and be generous. I want others to love their enemies. I want others to be more perfect because if they could all do that, it would sure be easier for me. I mean, I might give that a chance as well as long as they're doing it first. Because turn the other cheek sounds really, really great unless you've been punched in the mouth. 
so we've got some ground to cover today. Uh, but before we do that, before we move on to loving our enemies and things like that, let's start by that first little bit with oaths and honesty. Because Jesus begins our passage today by saying, you've heard that it was said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. Now, first, this is the pattern we have seen in this section of the Sermon on the Mount time and time again, as Jesus calls us to something deeper, something higher. You have heard that it was said, don't murder. I tell you, don't be angry with a brother or sister. You have heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. I say, don't look in order to lust. And our passage follows that same pattern. More to the point, people in that day had set up elaborate systems for taking oaths, for making sure people were being honest. Here's how you know I'm telling you the truth. I don't just promise, I pinky promise. So you know I'm being honest. Wait, that's not enough for you. Okay, that's fine. I swear on someone's importance grave. That's how you know I'm being honest. Wait, that's not enough? Okay, cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Now you know I'm telling the truth. But of course you see the problem. If you have to make an oath, the implication is that your words aren't already trustworthy. There's already some issue of untruthfulness. It reminds me of my favorite document that we signed when we were buying our house here. You're, 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 you're signing all the closing documents, so it's a stack about yay high, and you're, you're reading and signing and signing and signing. Sign here, 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 initial here, 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 sign there, 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 uh, document after document after document. And then there's this one page that came up, and it's my favorite. It's called the signature affidavit. It's way deep in the pile. Um, it's for the lender. I did some research here. Um, but it says something like this, I certify that this is my signature, and then it just has a line. It brings me up short as I'm going through these hundreds of pages because I've just signed my name over and over and over and over and over again, and then there's this piece of paper that wants to make sure that my signature, the one I've been using all day long now, is actually my signature. There was a moment I'm like, I'm going to sign this one with my left hand. Um, <laughs> And then I was like, I'm not going to get the house if I do that. Uh, but you see the problem. If I've been signing all of those other documents honestly, then doesn't it go without saying that this is my signature and I'm going to be honest about all that? And if I'm being fraudulent on all of those other documents, doesn't it go without saying that I'm probably still going to be fraudulent with this signature as well? It's not like... 4,000 signatures deep, you're like, oh, wait, you want my actual signature. I've been signing my doctor signature. Which is sort of Jesus' point. If you can't be trusted without an oath, why would we trust you with one? Which is why then Jesus simply says, be honest. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Do what you say which sounds easy enough, but I wonder if you actually took that more seriously, I wonder if we would, if we would all boast a little bit less, gossip a little bit less, 
use social media, not at all? What if our yes was only yes? And what if we went out of our way to make sure that when we said something, we did it? That our lies lived out what we portray? Of course, what Jesus is really getting at here is a deeper integrity. Or to put it back in the words of the Beatitudes earlier, pure in heart. That our words and thoughts and actions and beliefs and lives would all be in line with each other. Alas, that's the easy part of what we're talking about today, because then things get a little bit harder. So let us turn toward that other cheek and see what Jesus says next. Uh, though we probably need even here a little bit of a disclaimer because of how this passage, turn the other cheek, has been abused and misused. So let's clarify a few things about what we're talking about here, because we are not talking about taking or putting up with abuse. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. We're not saying that being a victim is a good thing or even a Jesus thing. We're not minimizing or denying the hurt that's been or is being inflicted. It is not okay. More to the point, Jesus is not telling us that we're supposed to be doormats. That's not what it means to turn the other cheek. In fact, I, I really like what uh, Charles Spurgeon commented on this passage. This passage is calling us to be the anvil when bad men are the hammers. But it can be a subtle distinction, can't it, between a doormat and an anvil? Because it all still hurts. Notice that the hammer hits a doormat and an anvil with the same amount of force. The only difference is in how we take it, how we respond to it, what we do next. But in that is all the difference in the world. Actually, let's back up even further. Because Jesus starts this section with that familiar formula. You have heard that it was said eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you, don't resist an evil person. So let's start with that heard it said part, because an eye for an eye had gotten a little bit mixed up by the time we got to Jesus' day. Because in the Old Testament, when that first showed up in the Bible, there are two things that they were missing a little bit. The first important part of this law was that it was to put a limit on how much could be done. Because, of course, if you take my eye, I want to take more from you. Because you're the guilty party. You're the evil person. You're the one who did this to me. You're the bad guy in this. And so an eye for an eye shouldn't be enough. I should get to do more than that. Which is why this rule then be came along to put restraint on revenge. Because, of course, these things have a tendency to escalate, to intensify. You insult me, I shove you. You hit me, I brawl with you and go after me uh, and my stuff. I go after you and your family. You come after me and my tribe. I come after you and your country, and it just keeps going. But where does it stop? How does it ever end? So the, this rule tried to keep things from spiraling like that by creating a maximum sentence. 
But the second part, and this is important, of that original law was seen in the context with which it was given. This was guidance given to judges. When you, professional judges, are trying to figure out what kind of sentence to levy, let this be your guide. Let this be your limit. In other words, this was not a law about personal vengeance at all. It's about civil justice. You are not ever supposed to take matters into your own hands. That's the point of this. This isn't a, my neighbor did this, so now I can do this back. But somehow this rule started to become justification for retribution. And Jesus says, no. And then Jesus goes further to illustrate his point and gives us these four little vignettes on what that means. A slap on the cheek, a legal suit to take your shirt, a demand to make you carry something a mile, a request for money. Working through those, we notice, of course, that a slap on the right cheek is a backhanded slap, which is insulting, not injuring. It's supposed to damage the ego, not the face. And that's not to say those don't hurt, but that's not, the hurt's not the point. And Jesus says, don't, don't run, don't cower, don't hit back, take it. Someone sues you for your shirt, just give them your coat as well. And you're thinking, but I didn't do anything wrong. Because you want to defend your honor, defend your name. And Jesus seems to be telling us not to worry so much. Then one of the Romans, they come out of nowhere. There's, this is the occupying nation. They come up and commandeer you to carry something for a mile. They're allowed to do that. And while that's clearly an inter interruption in your day and an insult to your character and person, not to mention a degrading reminder that we are not our own, Jesus says, don't just go the one. Take it another as well. And then give to the one who asks. Augustine makes a really interesting point here. This doesn't say to give whatever you are asked, but it's a much more personal. If you look at it, it's give to the whomever asks. The focus in the sentence is on the person, not the amount. But in all four of these vignettes, notice that they are all forms of degradation and exploitation. And Jesus' instruction is for us to not let it degrade or exploit us. Because we are the type of people who just turn the other cheek anyway. Go the extra mile anyway. Because in that is our choice. Which drives us all the way back to His beatitude. Blessed are the merciful and the meek and the poor in spirit. If I'm already going to carry this an extra mile, it doesn't hurt me that you asked me to take it one. If I'm not so concerned about my honor because I'm poor in spirit and meek and merciful, then I don't mind so much that you think you could dishonor me by hitting my cheek. And then Jesus drives all of this deeper. This is a hard portion of this Sermon on the Mount, though it started hard too. 
Because it's one thing to just stand there when you've been slapped and dishonored and not hid back or run away. That, that's hard. But then Jesus points us straight toward the people who don't like us and who we don't like. The people who are wrong. The people who are evil. The people who have hurt us. The people who deserve to have something done to them. And Jesus calls us to love them and pray for them. Jesus said, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And we think to ourselves, yeah, but you don't know what they've done. You don't know how wrong they are. You don't know how much it hurts. And Jesus responds, yes, I do. Love them pray for them. Now, be careful here, because if you're like me, you have some tricks to keep this from applying to you and your, your people. And I'll let you in. This is how I do it, because I don't actually like to um, love my enemies or pray for people who persecute me. So, here's, here are my tricks. I would encourage you not to use them. Uh, what you can do is you can make your people worse than enemies. So, here's enemy, and here's my people. So, if they were here, I would love them and pray for them, but they're not. My people are worse, so I don't have to. Or, I make, it's not that they're, they're enemies, they're right above that line. So, again, I don't have to love them and pray for them, because if they were enemies, then I would do what Jesus said, but they're not enemies, they're just, they, I don't like them. But they're not on the other side. I just don't like them, so I don't have to actually pray for them or love them. Or it's not that it's not that they're enemies, they're just bad people. They're not enemies. It's not, I mean, it's just that's their thing. So they're an exception to this rule. That these are some of the, the mental gymnastics I'm able to do, because I'm a pastor, to get around what Jesus is saying here. But it doesn't work. Last week in, in growth groups, our small group ministry, I asked a seemingly innocuous question, what kinds of things make you angry? My intent was that, with that question was to be thinking of just large categories of things that annoy you. I hate it when I lose my keys and I'm late for a thing, that kind of thing. But there's a good chance that when you heard that question, you thought of people and peoples that make you angry. To be very, very clear, those people are these people. And Jesus calls us to love them, and Jesus calls us to pray for them. Jesus calls us to pray for their benefit and their blessing, to want and will and work for their good. There's nothing easy in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you think there is, you're, you're getting something wrong here. Someone stabs you in the back, betrays you, willfully and wantonly does something wrong to you, denies something, hurts you, and Jesus says, love them, pray for them. And because this is Jesus, I don't get the sense that this is supposed to be like a one-time, reluctant, begrudging kind of prayer. I don't think he's saying uh, you should pray for your enemy. God, I pray that, that they don't get hit by a bus today kind of prayer. 
I get the sense that they are supposed to be part of our daily prayers. And notice, we haven't even gotten to forgiveness. That's like a whole different thing. That's something else entirely. Jesus is saying our, our reaction, our, our first reaction, needs to be love and prayer. I wonder what that would do in us. Okay, so what do we do with all of this? What do we do with, with any part of this Sermon on the Mount thus far? Because none of this is easy. None of this is, is even natural. In fact, if you really start thinking about some of these things, you, you recognize very quickly this is going to take some kind of superhuman effort, some, some kind of otherworldly strength, some, some kind of absolute change of heart for us to live this kind of life. This is calling us to some, some level of perfection. But of course, that's, that's Jesus' point as well, isn't it? It's funny how far we've come in this one chapter. Jesus began, blessed are the poor in spirit, and by the end, He's gotten all the way to be perfect, just as the Father's perfect. So the obvious question that we're left with is simply how? Even just in this little section, how, how do we turn the other cheek? How, how do we go the extra mile? How do you love someone who has hurt you? I mean, let's, let's just put it out there. This is Jesus' graduate-level class here. This is way past love your neighbor as yourself. But I think that that's also why He's preaching this sermon, to point us toward who He's called us to be, how He's called us to be different and distinct. And therefore, we recognize that discipleship takes practice. We're going to simply have to, to try it, to work at it. That person cut me off, belittled me, insulted me, hurt me. How can I not respond in kind? How can I not let their actions dictate mine? How can I be for their good? How can I, how can I be more like Jesus right now? Could I even pray for them? And then watch how you're changed. And in all of this, never, never forget that Jesus remains the ultimate example of all of this. Not responding in kind. On His way to a cross. Not letting their actions dictate His when they crucified Him, being for their good, praying for them, praying for us. That's where it comes from. That's that otherworldly, superhuman good news of the gospel, that God has come to us so that we might live more like this. Let's pray. Lord God, this whole Sermon on the Mount is difficult, but, but this part gets even harder. We don't want to love people that hurt us. We don't want to forgive people 
that have bruised us. And yet you call us to be a different kind of people, a beatitude kind of people. And so we pray that you would help us practice, help us live differently, help us change our responses. Help us love even those who hurt and pray for them too. And in that, change us and change our world. We pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ.